Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7147. A bunch of shows D.B. Cooper missed. The week of November 22, 1971. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks one week between the beginning of 1970 and the end of 1990, watches all of the sci-fi, superhero, horror, and fantasy shows that week, and brings it all home to you, the consumer, at no additional charge. Sometimes the week we pick is just down to an interesting three-car pile-up of shows, but sometimes, and this is one of those times, the week we pick features some other interesting event, during which there also happened to be an interesting three-car pile-up of shows. There was no reason to expect the week of November 22, 1971 to be one for the books. Led Zeppelin's fourth album, you know, the one containing Stairway to Heaven, had just been released two weeks before. Intel's 4004, the first mass-produced microprocessor, was a week old. A month before, the House of Lords in the UK voted to join the European Economic Community, the predecessor to the EU. I really hope that's worked out for them and the first edition of the Unix Programmer's Manual had gone to press. Mariner 9 had just become the first spacecraft to orbit Mars, though it would have to wait a few months for a global dust storm to clear up before starting to map the planet, which is why it was sent there. Surely things were going to calm down heading into Thanksgiving week, right? Well, sure, unless you were an American airplane hijacker named D.B. Cooper. For much of 1971, little to no security stood between passengers and their flights. I mean, why would anyone endanger an airplane? Doing so endangers everyone on the plane, including the person doing the endangering. It's just simple logic. Man, do I miss the days of just simple logic. There had already been hijackings, but the profile of hijackers to that point was pretty much a Venn diagram that also centered on what most people would describe as deranged lunatics. But a man who had bought a ticket for $20 in cash to fly from Portland to Seattle was about to change all that. He bought the ticket under the name Dan Cooper, and since there were neither watch lists nor verification of identity required to board a plane, he took his seat and then handed a note to one of the flight attendants stating that he had a bomb. He demanded $200,000 for parachutes and wanted the passengers to disembark and the plane to be refueled at Seattle after which he wanted the plane flown south toward Reno at the lowest altitude and airspeed that would keep it in the air. He would want the plane refueled in Nevada for a flight to Mexico, except that Dan Cooper didn't even stay on the plane long enough to reach Reno. He opened the stairs at the rear of the plane and jumped off with the money and presumably either parachuted to the ground or died trying. And that's just about all that's known. Cooper has never been found. If the descriptions of a man in his mid-40s were accurate, he would be around 90 years old now, if he were still alive. 
though some of the money was found in a very deteriorated state by an eight-year-old kid along the Columbia River in Washington State, the rest of it has never turned up. None of the serial numbers on the bills have matched any bills that have been passed since then. This was the only unsolved skyjacking in American history. Whatever happened to D.B. Cooper, it's very likely that he missed some classic TV from the night of his jump onward. Was it worth it, or did he pick a good batch of shows to skip? Let's find out. Gallery Season 2, Episode 10, The Dark Boy, and Keep in Touch, We'll Think of Something, aired Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, on NBC. The Dark Boy. Montana, the 19th century. School teacher Mrs. Tim is riding into town by horse-drawn wagon. She's about to take over as the teacher of the local school. The first townsfolk she meets are two older women, the Moore sisters, Abigail and Lottie, toiling in their fields. They're letting Mrs. Tim stay in their front room, and they have made the room ready for her. As she lies back on the bed, exhausted from the trip out here, Mrs. Tim pulls a piece of paper out of her pocket, a piece of paper with only two words on it that make you wonder about her decision-making process for taking on a new job, since those two words are, don't come. Most people would read that and think, relax, don't do it, but not Mrs. Tim, because here she is. The first day of school comes and goes, and she walks across the dusty road back to the Moore sisters' house, finding them working outside again. She smiles as she recalls all seventeen of her students. What? Both Abigail and Lottie quickly correct her. There are only sixteen students in this district, and frequently even less as some of the older children are expected to help work in their father's fields instead of going to school some days. But Mrs. Tim is really sure about this. She even counted how many of her students were blonde, that would be 16, and counted only one child with brown hair. She calls him the dark boy. When Mrs. Tim says she's going to rest up a bit and then go back to the school to grade her papers, Lottie warns her not to go to the school at night, but won't say why. Abigail's upset with her for even mentioning that. But hey, we're dealing with a teacher who rides into town despite a note that says don't come, so off to the school she goes that evening. As she's greeting, she happens to glance over at the window of the school and sees someone looking back at her. It's that one boy with the dark hair. She motions for him to come in, but he takes off running. When Mrs. Tim gets back to the Moore sisters' house, they have tea and a cookie waiting for her, and they're curious as to whether anything disturbing happened at the school. Were you disturbed, dear? When she mentions that the dark boy dropped by, their interest is piqued, and then she tells them about the note, Don't Come. Who would have written that? Anyone? No ideas? It seems nobody wants to talk about it. Good night. The next day, in the middle of class, a man named Mr. Rob interrupts, bringing his son to the schoolhouse. He's really not crazy about his whole school thing, you know, all this learning. But there's a new law that says he has to bring the kid here. So, here, my kid... Don't expect him to be here every day. I need him working. Oh, and don't let him climb any ladders. Well, okay then. That night, Mrs. Tim is grading papers at the school again, and there's that boy with the dark hair peeking in the window again. He spooks when she sees him, so she slips outside another door and catches him peeking in the window. He won't talk to her. He just nods. 
but Mrs. Tim knows his name is Joel and knows that he's been stuck in the fourth grade for two years. She even offers to teach him at night if he can't make it to class during the day on a regular basis, and she notices a scar on his forehead. And off he runs without a word. Say, he kind of looks like he might be related to the man who brought his son in this morning. When Mrs. Tim mentions this to the Moore sisters over nightly tea and cookies, Lottie loses it. Abigail, I told you, that school should be torn down and moved. But Abigail hushes her sister, and Lottie leaves the room in tears. Now it's just Mrs. Tim and Abigail. Abigail wonders if Mrs. Tim had a chance to speak to her predecessor, the previous school teacher, who left in an awful hurry. Mrs. Tim wonders if that's who left the note and accuses Abigail of hiding something. Without another word, Abigail's out of there. Well, guess that conversation's over, like so many conversations in this town. Mrs. Tim pays a house call to Mr. Robb and his son the next morning, and she asks about Joel. That puts Mr. Robb in a foul mood. Stop tormenting me, he says. We just want to be left alone. Joel cracked his head open, falling off of a ladder at the school. Oh, and Joel died two years ago. But Mr. Robb still sees him, too. He's not denying that Mrs. Tim has seen him, and with that he goes back into his house. Mrs. Tim accuses the Moore sisters of hiding the fact that the school is haunted and of chasing her predecessor out of town when she reported seeing Joel's ghost. That night at the schoolhouse, she waits for Joel, reads him a story, and now it's Mr. Robb who watches from outside the window. He quietly slips into the classroom and reaches out to the ghost of his son, talks to him. Joel doesn't say a word to either one of them. They walk back to Mr. Robb's house. It seems that he and Mrs. Tim have found some common ground, both being widowers and maybe even the spark of romance. By the time they reach the front door, Joel can no longer be seen. The End there's something really languid about the various transitions and crossfades throughout the episode. Even though shows from the early 70s had more time to play with without having to sacrifice as much of the hour to advertising time, they're taking up a lot of time here to imply the passage of time. It's like, okay, I'm hip. We get it. Mrs. Tim is teaching her students to diagram sentences. Good for her. No one diagrams sentences anymore. It seems like it's become a lost art. But then I got to wondering... Is this an anachronism? So I went and did a bit of research. When did the practice of diagramming sentences and teaching that at a grade school level come into being? As it turns out, it might be just a little bit of an anachronism. The practice of sentence diagramming goes back to a book published by a couple of professors at the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute with the idea that it would make identifying the parts of speech and concepts such as subject, object, and subject-verb agreement easier to comprehend. That book was published in 1877. Okay, we're good so far. But the use and teaching of sentence diagrams really became a widespread thing in American schools, and it appears to have been a uniquely American phenomenon in the early 1900s. And it remained a widespread thing until a study in the 60s revealed that, in the opinion of the researchers doing the study, it was a pointless distraction from students actually learning to write and speak effectively. But that message also took time to reach every school board in the country, because I remember diagramming sentences in the 70s and the early 80s. It actually helped me finally nail down the difference between adjectives and adverbs, something that, believe it or not, I had a trouble with as a kid. But it has fallen out of favor now and is no longer widely taught. So unless this is in the 1890s or something, and maybe if Mrs. Tim is from the big city, 
sentence diagrams might be a little ahead of their time here, but I also understand how it might happen. Some set decorator calls their relative the school teacher and says, I've got to put some stuff on a chalkboard for this show we're filming tomorrow, forgets to mention when the story takes place, and boom, we're diagramming sentences in the late 1800s. By the way, the schoolroom at night is really extraordinarily well lit by that one oil lamp. That is one hell of an oil lamp. As for what this story means, it's almost kind of a trope that the ghost of a loved one is hanging around until they see that those who lived on after their death have found some kind of happiness. It's not the most original story that has ever been told, but at least it gets a nice telling here. Though there was a line of dialogue I kept on waiting for someone, anyone, to say early in the show. Seventeen kids? There's only sixteen kids. You're teaching school, and you can't even count! Now, continuing that episode of Night Gallery, keep in touch, we'll think of something. San Francisco, the 20th century. A man named Eric Sutton says he picked up a woman who was hitchhiking, left her in the car with the engine running as he stopped at a newspaper vending machine by a liquor store at 2 in the morning, and the moment he turned around, she and his car were gone. He's waiting for one of the city by the bay's finest to take him seriously. But the police detective Eric's talking to doesn't seem to be too worried. Just go home. We'll let you know when your car turns up. And that way your wife doesn't have to be asking why you're picking up female hitchhikers in the dead of night. But a week later, after the car is recovered from Oakland, Eric Sutton goes for a late-night drive, parks his car, goes for a walk, comes back, and drives home. But the same lady hitchhiker was hiding in the back, attacked him when he got home, and stole his car again. At least that's what he tells the police. The detective again gets snarky. Hey, maybe your wife saw her when this happened. But it turns out Sutton's wife left him some time back. Sutton asks to spend a bit of time with the police sketch artist, and the result is, well, drop-dead gorgeous, really. For a couple of chance encounters, one of which was apparently a violent attack, Sutton got a really good look at her. He's brought back into the police station a few days later. They think they have found her. Her name's Claire Foster, and she's already conferring with her lawyer after being accused of attacking Eric Sutton. She's married and claims that during both incidents she was nowhere near Sutton, but was with her husband, who conveniently left for Venezuela this morning. During a lineup, however, Sutton says Claire Foster isn't his attacker, and then things get a bit more complicated. His car has been found, again, but with only his fingerprints on the wheel. They have to let Claire Foster go. But later that night, who should walk into the bar where Eric Sutton is having a drink but Claire Foster? She seems understanding enough. She doesn't even want to press charges. But she does want to know how Sutton knows her. He buys her a martini and says he's been dreaming about her since college. She's a little flattered, a lot creeped out, because, you know, she's a little married. But she's still there, listening to Sutton as he talks about having the bright idea of faking an attack so the police would let him give a description to a sketch artist. When he puts his hand on her shoulder and asks if she's truly happily married, though, a line has been crossed. Hands off, buddy. 
She totally understands the dream thing, though. Her husband has been having recurring dreams about a man slipping into their bedroom at night and strangling him. A man with a scar on the back of his hand, but, oh, that's not Sutton. But Sutton thinks Claire was trying to put ideas in his head, especially when she lets him kiss her. And while they are in that embrace, she grabs something sharp and slashes Sutton's hand with it. Hey, it's okay. He can rest up at her place after having stitches. The end. This episode, or this story, this half of this episode, was written and directed by Gene Kearney. Gene was a Korean War veteran who began working in radio and film upon returning from the service, making documentaries and industrial films even before he made it to Hollywood. Once he was in Hollywood, he found his niche as a writer, director, occasional producer. He was also an actor in a couple of installments of Night Gallery. One of them was also one of the episodes he wrote and directed. There's only one instance in which he did not direct one of his own Night Gallery scripts, so he was kind of the complete creative package in Night Gallery's second and early third seasons. After escaping the gallery, he went on to become a writer for Kojak, where he racked up over 20 writing credits, three of which he also directed. He was also a producer on Kojak for a little while. He went on to write for Switch, Lou Grant, and a little-known Kenneth Johnson series, The Secret Empire, which was actually piloted within NBC's Cliffhanger anthology. But all of this work only brings us to 1979, which is when, sadly, Gene Kearney died of cancer at the age of 49. Far, far too young, especially for someone as prolific and talented. You know, if The Dark Boy didn't have much to say story-wise, this one has even less to say, really. I feel kind of bad for Alex Cord's character, because this is a guy who is walking, moon-eyed, straight to his doom. And you know it. And he probably knows it. And he's going anyway, because he might get laid by the girl of his dreams out of the deal. It's definitely some deep, dark, black comedy going on here, and the cast plays it well. It's just that you can tell this is not going to end well for Eric Sutton. Mission Impossible, Season 6, Episode 11, The Visitors, aired Sunday, November 27, 1971, on CBS. At the secluded mansion of Edward Granger, owner of Granger Publications, an ambitious young reporter presents Mr. Granger himself with the stash of documents to back up what could be the story of a lifetime. It's all there, the names, the dates, the proof, all of it pointing to the underworld crime syndicate that runs the state politically. Granger asks, you've made copies of this, right? And the reporter admits that he hasn't. He wants to break the story himself, not allow it to leak to someone else. With just a glance to his right-hand man, Mr. Kellogg, Granger sets a series of events in motion. As the reporter is whisked away in a helicopter, the helicopter explodes. Goodbye, reporter. Goodbye, all the evidence. Oh, and goodbye, whoever was piloting that helicopter. Being an essential employee really sucks. Hello, Jim Phelps. The latest self-destructing tape lays it all out. 
With just a little more digging, Granger's ties to the crime syndicate would have been exposed as well. That's why the reporter was murdered. Just 72 hours remain before the state elections. Jim's job, should he and the IMF choose to accept it, is to blow the story wide open where voters can see it for themselves. Break the story that could break the syndicate's stranglehold on the state government. And be aware that Granger's more than ready to kill anyone who threatens to expose him. No pressure. And so it begins. Barney Collier poses as a known but seldom seen ex-con looking for work from Kellogg, distracting him from Phelps and Willie Armitage sneaking around the grounds, doing things that look an awful lot like they're pulling off a major heist. Oh wait, that's exactly what they're doing. And then they kidnap Granger's chauffeur and steal his limo, along with five figures worth of cash from Granger's safe. In the morning, it looks to Granger and Kellogg as though his chauffeur has taken twelve grand from the safe, stolen the limo, and taken off, secure in the knowledge that Granger won't call the police because the chauffeur has too much dirt that he could turn over on Granger. Kellogg already has a backup plan. Mr. Granger, meet your new driver, Marty Dix. Except, of course, that Marty is Barney. Almost as soon as he's on the payroll, Barney engineers a way to drop an angry, mutated bee into Granger's office through the ventilation system. The next morning, Granger has places to go, but while he's waiting for his new chauffeur to show up, there's something flying around in his office. By the time Kellogg gets there, he finds Granger lying in the floor. What's this next to him? A bee. I'll have a mutant bee. Well, it's a dead mutant bee, and its sting has done a number on Mr. Granger. His private doctor is called. He normally drops by every day anyway to give Granger a vitamin injection because Granger intends to live forever. He tries to call the poison and venom specialist at the local university, but thanks to all that tinkering done by Phelps and Willie, the call goes instead to Phelps, posing as a doctor. Under cover of taking a sample of Granger's blood and the bee to the university, Barney drives the limo to the undisclosed location Phelps is using as their base of operations, picks up Phelps and Lisa Casey to sneak them back to the Granger compound. Barney drives the limo to the undisclosed location Phelps is using as their base of operations and picks up Phelps and Lisa Casey to sneak them back into the Granger compound. That night, Barney arranges the biggest fog machine and light show outside Granger's window since the last time Pink Floyd was in town. You see, Phelps' research turned up not only a fascination with immortality, but Granger's obsession with UFOs as well, stemming from an incident 25 years ago. By morning, Phelps and Lisa show up suddenly dressed as a doctor and nurse, bluffing their way past Granger's doctor and Kellogg. Granger has been paralyzed by the mutant bee sting, and Dr. Phelps has the only treatment for him that will work. Everyone else needs to leave the room. There's another light show, an injection is given, and Phelps and Lisa leave through the back door and climb up a rope ladder to another part of Granger's mansion. That's an unconventional exit to say the least, but by the time any of Granger's people burst back into the room, there's almost no evidence that they were there. Granger's doctor calls the university to check on the doctor and nurse who were sent to Granger's mansion. Willie intercepts the call. Doctor and a nurse? We didn't send a doctor and a nurse. A search of the grounds doesn't turn up any intruders. Granger turns on the TV and immediately hears a news bulletin about a UFO sighting reported by hundreds of people overnight. Yeah, that's Willie's doing too. Granger is now convinced that he was visited and saved by people from another world. But he doesn't dare let that slip to his staff. They'll think he's nuts. Later, as Granger and Kellogg are being driven around by Barney, the car develops mm, problems. 
in air quotes. Sure it does. Barney goes out, pops the hood. Kellogg is suspicious enough to go stand over Barney's shoulder while he works on the car, and this means Kellogg doesn't see the other car pull up behind the stopped limo. Lisa Casey gets out and slides into the back of Granger's limo. Hey, remember me? I'm Space Nurse. You show early signs of leukemia, and we want to help you with that. I'll be back. And just like that, she's gone again, and Kellogg didn't notice a thing. She later shows up in Granger's office wearing the latest space nurse duds, and she also looks like the woman Granger was with 25 years ago when he had his first close encounter. Uh, I mean, close encounter of the third kind. Come on, get your minds out of the gutter. She shows him that his office has been bugged. Granger calls Kellogg into his office to fire him. Kellogg is ordered to leave the grounds immediately and to take that new chauffeur with him. Granger is seriously spooked. In fact, he's not even buying Lisa's story, but he does allow her to leave. Not so fast, though. She's being tailed by Barney and Kellogg. Granger's doctor calls him. His blood work from the university revealed that he might have leukemia. How much do you want to bet that Willie arranged those uh, test results? Into Granger's office walks Jim Phelps, demanding to know where Lisa has gone and announcing that she's in danger. When Granger has no useful information, Phelps turns to leave, but Granger is now seriously freaked out. He offers to drive Phelps to follow her as well. The two-car chase is now a three-car chase, and with the commanding lead that Lisa and Barney had, Granger's driving like a bat out of hell. But during that drive, Phelps keeps up the visiting alien ploy. Yes, we saved you 25 years ago, but not so you could become corrupt and deceitful. Lisa fakes her own death, and Phelps, following the script closely, reacts in anger. Kellogg takes off running. Before Granger and Phelps can reach Lisa's body, Willie has applied a hideous and decidedly non-human mask to her. Phelps carries her to the car. Granger, you drive. Willie, still on the scene, gives Barney a lift. Phelps has Granger drive right into the building they were using as a secret base of operations. Willie has set up quite a light show and an impressive set, assembling a very alien-looking operating room. And it's here that Granger watches, stunned as the body dissolves away before his eyes, to be replaced by space nurse Lisa, apparently resurrected. Granger wants to undergo this process, too, to live forever. Surely the aliens are here showing him this because they chose him 25 years ago right? Phelps tells him, sure, but you have to renounce the corruption that you have helped to flourish, and you have to do it now. Using an alien communication device that just happens to be patched into the phone system, Granger calls the radio station he owns and has himself put on the air, and starts naming the candidates in the election who are under the thumb of the crime syndicate live on the air. While he's doing this, Phelps and his cohorts quietly leave Granger there and take off. Their work is done. After they've gone, as Granger tries to figure out how to get out of the room, Kellogg figures out how to get in. He shoots Granger at point-blank range and leaves him to die. Granger crawls across the floor, bleeding out in the room full of what he thinks is alien technology. Does he try to get back on the phone and call for help? No. He reaches for the resurrection device and... The End. With the cast, aside from Peter Graves now consisting solely of Greg Morris, Linda Day George, and Peter Lupus, we are not just in the post-Landau years, but the post-Nimoy years of Mission Impossible as well. Another thing missing from the final few seasons of Mission Impossible were the international Cold War intrigue of the show's early years, because props and costumes and set pieces and dressing up outside shooting locations to look like other countries was getting really expensive. 
The later seasons of Mission Impossible were more concerned with domestic crime, and organized crime was a recurring bad guy, as was the case with this episode. Guest starring as Mr. Granger, Steve Forrest was one of the stars of the original SWAT series and had recurring roles on Dallas and Team Knight Rider, that one-season wonder of the 90s that tried to deliver a clean, safe, environmentally friendly, and Hasselhoff-free Knight Rider experience that somehow just didn't connect with syndicated TV audiences. He also appeared in The Sixth Sense, The Six Million Dollar Man, Circle of Fear, Night Gallery, and the 1979 Captain America TV movie, so I'd say chances are good we will be discussing more of Steve Forrest's work in other installments of Retrogram. Frank Hotchkiss as Kellogg has a much shorter resume. His work is confined almost entirely to a two-year span between 1970 and 71, including an episode of Night Gallery. Frank left the world of acting to become a city councilman in Santa Barbara, California. The Visitors was written by Harold Livingston, who had some serious genre credits to his name. Maybe you're not swayed by this or any of the other eight episodes of Mission Impossible he wrote, and maybe you're not impressed by the episode of the Bill Bixby series The Magician that he wrote. He also wrote episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Fantastic Journey, and Future Cop. He was the executive story editor of Future Cop, too. Okay, so how about this? Harold Livingston was brought in by Paramount Pictures to rewrite the screenplay of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yes, really, he was. That was a job that put him in constant conflict with Gene Roddenberry, and because of that, Harold tried to quit several times, only to have the studio throw money at him and, on at least one occasion, physically bar him from leaving the studio lot. But that was all in the future. For right now, Harold Livingston was just a few years into his writing career, and like so many TV writers, he was plying his trade one script at a time. Reza Badi, veteran Mission Impossible director, is behind the camera for this one. He directed 18 episodes of Mission Impossible, four episodes early in the run of The Six Million Dollar Man, as well as episodes of The Incredible Hulk, Holmes and Yo-Yo, The Man from Atlantis, The Phoenix, and Superboy. He also directed the penultimate episode of one of my all-time favorite TV series, Police Squad, which of course was the basis for the Naked Gun movies. He also directed several episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and of course, dozens of cop shows and action shows from the 70s through the 90s. Rest assured, we will be talking about more of Reza's work in other installments of Retrogram. I couldn't help but notice that they are using the color organ as a prop. There are two scenes, the sham operation carried out to convince Granger that he's had some super-futuristic surgical procedure, and the alien hospital scene at the end that make heavy use of a gadget called a color organ as a prop, which I found kind of funny. The color organ is a very, very 70s piece of technology. It's really just different colored lights in a box behind a diffuser lens with a wire to connect to a stereo system. Each light would come on basically as a function of signal attenuation of different frequencies of the sound coming through that wire, and some of them had a dial or knob so you could set how sensitive you wanted it to be. These were the disco lights in a box that were all over the place in the 70s and the early 80s. I actually have a working one, thanks to Steve W. on the logbook.com forums, which I still totally use as part of my usual display of really old stuff. I got a chuckle out of seeing color organs incorporated into super-futuristic props here. Maybe in 1971 they weren't in stores everywhere, so maybe they were kind of an exotic item at the time. 
Of course, the fact that I feel the need to explain and identify what a color organ is in 2020 means that it has become an exotic item again. About 12 or so minutes in, Granger has a line. Mankind has been taught by religion to walk meekly to the grave. The implication is that he holds himself to a higher standard than that. He thinks he's smarter. But is he? Fast forward to the last scene in the episode. Does he reach for something he knows will put him in touch with his employees at the radio station who could summon help? Or does he reach for the magical solution of alien technology? Now, granted, in some ways, Phelps and friends have set him up for this fall because they put on one hell of a dog and pony show to demonstrate that the resurrection tank works. But they're just taking advantage of a belief that Granger already has. Granger was already predisposed, kind of self-indoctrinated by a misinterpretation of an experience he'd had 25 years ago, to believe in his own flavor of magical thinking. And there's every indication, with that sudden fade to black at the end, that this is going to carry him to his grave. Now, are Phelps and the IMF responsible for Granger's death? I mean, obviously Kellogg pulls the trigger, but Phelps and friends had to know that he would be looking for Granger because the implication of Granger's bugged office is that Kellogg, who Granger thought was working for him, has been his mob handler all along and making sure Granger knows that he has to continue to do the syndicate's bidding. But Phelps, Barney, and the rest, they just leave him, knowing that mob retribution will not be far off. Now, just to be clear, Granger's got blood on his hands before the opening credits even roll. I'm not saying he should be let off the hook for rolling over on the mob, especially when he's basically tricked into rolling over on the mob. But I can't quite let Phelps off the hook here either. It's kind of troubling. This episode is really more The Avengers than Mission Impossible. And, and by The Avengers, I mean Steed and Mrs. Peel, not Tony Stark and the gang. The whole UFO thing is really fanciful and sets you up to think, hey, they're doing something kind of bonkers and fun here, and then wham, they hit you over the head with that dark ending. Yowza. Earth 2 aired Monday, November 28, 1971 on ABC. Cape Canaveral, the launch pad. A Saturn V rocket waits, and in the water off the coast, trying to stay out of sight of a Coast Guard patrol boat, an armed man in deep-sea diving gear waits as well. In choppy seas, it's hard for the diver to draw a bead on his target. But there it is, the Saturn V is in his sights. A giant tank of fuel just waiting to be ignited but he never gets his shot off. The Coast Guard shoots him before he can squeeze off a single round. The rocket launches with an Apollo spacecraft on top of it, carrying three astronauts. The President of the United States addresses the country. This isn't a moonshot. This is a mission to plant the seed of an entire new nation in space, with the goal of helping to improve life on Earth by identifying resources, conducting life-saving research, and fostering international cooperation. But it's not just up to the president. The public should get a vote. So all in favor, turn on your lights tonight. If you're not crazy about this idea of Earth 2, just stay in the dark. 
The votes are counted, and the eyes have it. Earth 2 will be constructed, and it'll be a sovereign entity with membership in the United Nations, though building it will take a few years. Fast forward a few years. Earth 2 is huge. A space shuttle approaches with a special passenger and his family on board. Frank Carger, the guy who was in charge of mission control when that first Apollo mission to initiate Earth 2 went up. His wife Lisa and their young son Matt are with him, but they're moving to Earth 2 permanently. Matt's a little upset that he couldn't bring his toy gun, but Jim Kappa, a member of that original Apollo crew and now one of Earth 2's leaders, explains that weapons of any kind are forbidden here, even pretend weapons. But don't worry, there's plenty for kids to do here. In space! The Cargers settled into their new quarters, and David Seville, another of the original launch crew who has remained in orbit ever since, drops by to say hi and to lay some ground rules. Earth 2 is a completely democratic society. Every vote counts, and every opinion is welcome. Though Seville bristles a little bit at Frank Carger's suggestion that the key to maintaining Earth 2's sovereignty is arming itself, at least just enough to defend itself. But from who? Hold that thought, though. Seville is summoned to Earth 2's control center. An orbital weapon launched by China has been detected. Seville wants every possible scan run on it. Electromagnetic, spectroscopic, the works. Frank Carger watches with interest. He asks if the man giving Seville all of the available information was Russian. No, Seville says. He's a citizen of Earth 2. And so are you. Later, the results of those scans are cause for some alarm. The orbital weapons platform will pass over Moscow on a daily basis, and it's packing some serious heat. Nuclear heat, if you get my drift. The orbit means that live nukes will pass within 150 miles of Earth 2 every day. Jim Kappa is sent in a shuttle to get photos and close scans, and it just so happens that Lisa Kruger is an ace photographer, so she tags along to take the pictures. Those photos seal the deal. It's a satellite standing by to rain nuclear destruction down upon the Soviet Union, but a satellite that also poses a threat to Earth 2. Seville returns to Earth to take part in a very tense diplomatic standoff with representatives from both China, which launched the weapon, and the USSR. Moscow is obviously pretty unhappy that Beijing has launched a missile platform in orbit with Moscow firmly in its sights. Beijing says space is for everyone to use as they see fit, and they also warn both the USSR and Earth to mind your own business. Any direct interference will result in retaliation. End of meeting. That went nowhere. David Seville goes back to Earth 2, where Frank Carger wants to test the nation station system of democracy with a D&D. &D. Oh, oh, I call dibs on being the halfling bard. No, sadly, it's not that kind of D&D. &D. It's a discussion and debate to be followed by a vote. And everything that anyone says is fact-checked in real time by the station's computer, which prints its findings on the screen as everyone watches. Carger makes his position very clear. If Earth-2 shies away from taking action where this satellite is concerned, the superpowers of Earth will walk all over Earth-2 in the future. And what better way to show the value of Earth-2 by preventing World War III from breaking out on Earth? To Seville's dismay, Carger's argument gains a lot of ground with the other citizens of Earth-2. But there's one strongly dissenting opinion, and it's Lisa Carger. The arguments end, voting begins, and the eyes have it. The citizens of Earth-2 vote to seize the weapon before it can harm them or anyone on Earth. The shuttle sets out on this dangerous mission. Seville and Carger watch tensely from the control room aboard Earth-2. As the shuttle closes in, China issues a warning. 
leave our nuke alone, or we'll blow it. The plan is to disable the control relays so the warhead can't be detonated, and then defuse the warhead. But when the astronaut working on the relays sets off a detector, the warhead is triggered, but doesn't blow. The electrical charge, however, connects to the astronaut's suit and electrocutes him. The warhead is still armed, but no one can detonate it remotely now. So, mission kind of accomplished? The injured man is retrieved, and the entire missile is deposited in a cargo bay on Earth 2. And Frank Carger thinks this is kind of the perfect outcome. You see, now Earth 2 has its own nuke. Now Earth 2 can defend itself. When Seville says that's not how Earth 2 does things, Carger says, hey, let's call for another D&D &D and another vote. I'll win it again. But before the vote is ever called, Lisa Carger goes to the cargo bay, blows its outer hatch, and sends the missile, warhead, and all plunging out into space. She wants it gone before her son's future on Earth 2 becomes just as dangerous as it would have been on Earth itself. But in addition to completely circumventing Earth 2's democratic process, Lisa is not an engineer or an astrophysicist, and though she waited for the sun to be visible through the blown hatch to jettison the nuke, all she's done is set it on a course to fall to Earth, where the heat of re-entry will detonate the warhead somewhere over uh, Chicago, maybe the Great Lakes. Oops. Time for another shuttle mission to retrieve the missile, and this time Seville himself is on board. It's too important to leave to anyone else, and it might be the kind of mission from which one doesn't return. He can't order anyone else to do that. The shuttle manages to capture the missile and return it to Earth-2 so the warhead can be defused and then fired harmlessly into the sun. But the heat of almost re-entering Earth's atmosphere has done a number on the warhead. The best they can hope to do is a makeshift measure to keep the thing from blowing up before it's far away from the station. Tense wire cutting, lots of second guessing, and no boom. The nuke is fired into space where it tumbles toward the sun. Even Carger is all for it, now that he's had to help defuse a nuke on board Earth-2. It's not an experience he wants to repeat. The End This movie is very, very fondly remembered by the audience who saw it at the time. And you know what? There, There is a lot to like here, okay? I can see why it would be remembered that way. There are some really cool sets, some neat ideas, and some really interesting tricks like the shot where Carger and his family transition from the central core zero-g area with its magnetized floors to the rotating section with gravity appearing to walk up a wall. Okay, so it's not on the same scale of ingenuity as 2001 Space Odyssey's rotating hamster wheel of a set, but for a TV budget in the early 70s, and keep in mind this was only three years after 2001, it's really cool. That space station model is a beauty, just a really nice piece of work for that era of TV effects. That's not to say that Earth 2 is without problems. Let's start with voting by light. I've got a big problem with this idea. You're pretty much saying here that you only care what the developed, industrialized world thinks of this space station as a nation in space idea. <sighs> Which is probably uncomfortably close to the truth. Establishing a new nation in space, even one that will supposedly become self-sufficient, is going to take a lot of resources. I mean, we're talking a lot of resources. So, hey, let's start a new country in space really does land as the most rich white man idea imaginable. The sort of thing you do if you're unbelievably rich, you can launch rockets, and you're getting bored thinking up strings of characters that resemble incomplete mathematical equations to name your kids. Not that I'm thinking of anyone specific there. 
There's an on-screen graphic during the D&D. Use of term bomb is for emotional appeal, but inaccurate. And then it offers a minor correction on Carger's estimate of the distance between the nukes and the station, and then flashes no evidence to support this conclusion during Seville's rebuttal. Real-time fact-checking and analysis? Man, how much trouble would that have saved us in recent years in real life? No, really, I mean, think about it. How many lives would that have saved since the beginning of 2020? Also, how does it work? Is the computer that sophisticated? Or is someone possibly with their own biases making these determinations? That's kind of a question mark. I mean, they really do make it seem like this is happening entirely within the computer. And it's an interesting idea. The funny thing is, we have fact-checking almost real-time now. You know, you have Snopes, you have PolitiFact, several other sites. People don't listen. Earth 2 was the brainchild of the writing team of Alan Balter and William Reed Woodfield. Woodfield began his TV writing career on the late 50s series Sea Hunt, while Balter's first credit didn't happen until 1961. They began writing together on a 1965 episode of Irwin Allen's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and continued to co-write on such shows as Lost in Space and The Time Tunnel, and really hit their stride as some of the most frequently employed writers in the early years of Mission Impossible, collaborating on a total of 24 episodes of that show until they left over ongoing creative differences with Mission Impossible creator Bruce Geller. They actually ducked out as that series was at its most popular and went on to create the short-lived TV series San Francisco International Airport in 1970. Following that series, they collaborated again on Earth 2, which was again intended to lead into a series, though that didn't happen. Balter and Woodfield continued working together on episodes of Shaft, but after that they went their separate ways. Their last joint credit was on the late 1980s revival of Mission Impossible, which went into production during a Hollywood writer's strike with the express intention of simply remaking scripts from the original show in a more modern setting. Their 1967 episode, The Legacy, was remade with a new cast in 1988. Balter went on to write for The Powers of Matthew Starr and was an executive producer on such shows as The Six Million Dollar Man and both of the late 70s Captain America TV movies. Neither of them is still with us. Alan Balter died in 1981, which made his Matthew Starr credit a posthumous one, while Woodfield died in 2001. Now, for what it's worth, William Reed Woodfield gained much more acclaim as a photographer than as a TV writer, with his most famous photos being a set of nudes of Marilyn Monroe taken just months before she died. There's an on-screen acknowledgement at the beginning of the movie indicating that the movie draws on advanced studies of NASA for its depiction of a space station. Those advanced studies had to be really, really advanced, because keep in mind at this point, NASA had yet to even so much as launch Skylab. Tom Grise directed Earth 2. Since the 1950s, he had directed a few films, but a whole lot of TV, including science fiction theater, Stony Burke, Combat, the Adam West Batman series, and I Spy, among many others. His big screen work included 100 Rifles and Will Penny. He was also the creator of the hit 1960s TV series Rat Patrol. We lost Tom in 1977. Gary Lockwood was the star of a single-season early 60s series called The Lieutenant, which just happened to be the first TV series created by an up-and-coming writer named Gene Roddenberry. 
When the lieutenant was cancelled, Roddenberry brought Gary Lockwood back to guest star in the almost unprecedented second pilot episode of the next show he was working on, a little thing called Star Trek, where Gary played Commander Gary Mitchell, Captain Kirk's first choice as first officer of the Enterprise. At around the same time, Gary was also shooting a Stanley Kubrick movie, a little thing called 2001 A Space Odyssey, as doomed astronaut Frank Poole. He went on to guest star in Mission Impossible, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Bionic Woman, The Highwayman, Superboy, Dark Skies. I'd say chances are pretty good we'll run into Gary Lockwood in other installments of Retrogram. Scott Highlands has been all over our TVs since the early 70s. Earth 2 is actually one of his earliest acting credits. He was a series regular on Night Heat in the late 1980s, ABC's early 21st century revival of V, and starred as the mysterious Dr. Arborea himself in the cult classic horror film Beyond the Black Rainbow. Along the way, he's guest starred in The Sixth Sense, Kung Fu, The Magician, Wonder Woman, Project UFO, The Powers of Matthew Starr, Airwolf, Kung Fu The Legend Continues, The X-Files, Stargate SG-1, the 90s revival of The Outer Limits, UPN's 2003 revival of The Twilight Zone, Eureka, Supernatural, and work as recent as episodes of Fargo and Heartland. Harry Rhodes had already been a series regular on Doctari and The Bold Ones, The Protectors. He had guest roles on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, the original Outer Limits, Mission Impossible, all of those before Earth 2. After Earth 2, he went on to the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and kept up a busy career as a guest star on such shows as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Logan's Run TV series, Wonder Woman, Salvage One, Beyond Westworld, The Powers of Matthew Starr, and Auto Man. So again, we'll be touching on Harry's career in other installments of Retrogram. We lost Harry in 1992. Starring as Carger, Anthony Tony Franciosa was a fixture of American TV and movies since the 1950s. He was one of the three rotating leading men in the 1972 spy series Search, which is one of my favorite shows that I discovered while prepping for Retrogram. This is really one of a small handful of genre credits for Tony, whose other guest spots include The Love Boat, Jake and the Fat Man, and starring roles in such series as Valentine's Day in the 60s, and Matt Helm, and The Finder of Lost Loves in the 70s. We lost Tony, winning smile, impeccable dress sense, and all, in 2006. Marriott Hartley surely needs no introduction, whether you've seen her in any of the dozens of shows she's been a guest star on, or if you just remember her from the Polaroid commercials she starred in with James Garner in the late 70s and 80s. She's been seen in The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, The Sixth Sense, Circle of Fear, Genesis 2, which was Gene Roddenberry's first post-Star Trek pilot to make it to the air, Logan's Run, an Emmy-winning guest role on The Incredible Hulk, and by the way, that means she was the first actor ever to win an Emmy for a role in a science fiction series. Her body of work continues right up to the present day. I should point out also that for those of you who really dug the groovy music from this made-for-TV movie, it was composed by Lalo Schifrin, also of Mission Impossible fame, and after a 40-year wait, the soundtrack was finally released on CD as part of the criminally underrated TV Omnibus Volume 1 soundtrack collection released by the now-defunct Filmscore Monthly label. If you go to filmscoremonthly.com, you might still be able to get a copy.
The Earth 2 music has a really trippy, early 70s sci-fi plus feel-good peacenik vibe, and that soundtrack might be the only official piece of merchandise ever to spring from Earth 2. It's kind of funny how often in the notes about the cast, Gene Roddenberry kept getting mentioned. That's funny because a lot of people I've run into over the years seem to think that Gene was connected to Earth 2, which he wasn't. He wrote and produced a pilot movie in 1973 called Genesis 2, which also starred Marriott Hartley, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. Some of the confusion may also arise from Earth 2's attempt at a utopian outlook, a utopian outlook that is almost undone by the hawkish attempts of Tony Franciosa's character to undermine that utopian outlook. I'm not sure in rewatching it how anyone could think that this was Gene's work, and in any case, as pilot movies go, it went nowhere. Sort of like the search for D.B. Cooper. A lot of things happened in the wake of what is still one of the strangest unsolved crimes in U.S. history. For one thing, throughout 1972, there were a number of copycat hijackings, all of which went wrong in one way or another. The suspects in every case were identified and apprehended. In 1973, mandatory baggage searches began, ushering in modern air travel security as we knew it, at least until 2001 when it became obvious that more than just baggage needed to be searched. Over a dozen potential suspects have been pointed out over the years, none of whom could conclusively be proven to have been D.B. Cooper. Oh, and a lot of documentary filmmakers and true crime authors have made some serious bank over the years trying to conclusively prove that they know who did it or what happened after November 24, 1971. Some of them have probably made more money from that than was delivered to D.B. Cooper before he jumped off the plane. Now, my friend Vic Sage over at the Pop Culture Retrorama site reminded me, as I was prepping for this show, not to discount the theory that Bigfoot saved D.B. Cooper from a fatal plummet to the ground. I just wanted to acknowledge that. But here's the thing. If I save part of my ice cream cone from plummeting to the ground and put it in my freezer to eat it later, has it really been saved? I mean, I saved it, but how does the ice cream cone feel about that? It's been saved, sure, but it's going to be eaten. That theory really depends a lot on the assumption that Bigfoot is benevolent. I'm sorry, this whole thing is going down a rabbit hole, isn't it? Let me get back to what D.B. Cooper wasn't watching, rather than whether or not there was any squatching. By the way, if you're going to have a rendezvous with any kind of Rama, I strongly recommend popcultureretrorama.com. I've pitched in quite a few retro genre TV-related articles over there, so if you like Retrogram, you'll probably enjoy those too. In the end... All that the Retrogram podcast can say with any certainty is that D.B. Cooper missed Night Gallery, Mission Impossible, and Earth 2 that week. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org. A huge thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Now, I hope none of them would hijack a plane to help keep the logbook site and its various podcasts and video casts around but sometimes I wonder if you like shows, transcripts occasional bonus shows and early show access, blast off to patreon.com slash the logbook just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done 
If you don't want to do the ongoing Patreon thing, we get that. You can also buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash the logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies, including our new line of face masks. Now, how 2020 is that? From our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com or by ordering all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram has been a production of thelogbook.com. His big screen work included 100 wi- 100 rifles. <laughs> Take my rifle, please. <laughs>